You know, we as uh, humans go a long ways towards saving each other. When something happens, a natural disaster or some other accident, there are lots of means that we go through. I'm reminded of one that happened in August of 2010. If you all, you'll probably remember this. There were 30, 33 Chilean miners, that's with an E-R, not an O-R, miners who were mining for gold and for silver and copper, and they were trapped underground, almost half a mile underground. And they were trapped for 69 days. All 33 of them were eventually saved. However, what's, what's amazing about this is from the moment that the, the, the mine collapsed, what's amazing is the number of people that were involved in saving them. Uh, they tried several different means by saving them, eventually coming up with a, a plan that worked. But there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were devoting their time to this. There were newscasts round the clock on the day, October 13th, 2010, when the first of the 33 miners were brought out. It was broadcast to the world. They think there were somewhere in the neighborhood of nearly a billion people watching this saving of these 33 men. And justly so, because we believe all 33 of those men were valuable. But we also know something else about this, don't we? We know that that was just their physical lives. We know that there's a more important life, a one that goes on for eternity, our souls. I think about how we've been so quick to try to save people's lives physically. Some of you in this room, you've made it your life's goal to save the souls of individuals. Some of you are missionaries visiting us from afar. Others of you have gone on mission trips Others of you have donated hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to mission work, and rightfully so. There's been short-term mission trips, long-term mission trips, local mission trips, and international mission trips. And so all of these are right, and they're good. We should all be doing that. We also know that many of you in this room have entered into relationships in your, your daily life that you're witnessing to that person about Jesus. That coworker, that family member, that friend, that neighbor, that person that pumps your gas. You've entered into these relationships. And why do we do that? Well, we do that because we recognize the soul has value and the soul is eternal. I want to read you one of my favorite quotes. No surprise, it comes from Charles Spurgeon. This is what he writes If sinners be damned, at least. Let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the mindset we have as Christians for those who are not saved. And it's the correct mindset. So let me hear, we're not going to change that at all. We want to keep that as our mindset. We want to go and tell the good news to the waiting world that so badly needs it. But today, this passage, this passage is an internal look. This is a look at us on what we're doing inside. And unfortunately, this passage, and some of your Bibles will even say this, 
will say this is church discipline. And when you hear a phrase like church discipline, all sorts of things come to mind, many of them not so good. Some of us think of loss of friends. Some of us think of that big imposing word excommunication. Maybe some of us, if we know our history, think of things like the Spanish Inquisition and other terrible, terrible things. Well, I'm going to argue that today this passage is really not about church discipline as we misunderstand it. Instead, it's a totally different thing, and I'll explain that to you. But let me tell you, the the goal of this passage is not to throw people out of the church. This is not a checklist to be like, get rid of that one, get rid of that one, get rid of that one. This is not to embarrass. This is not to be self-righteous in the face of someone's unrighteousness. This is not the church playing God. This is not us exercising power in an unbiblical manner. Instead, this passage today is probably better labeled a spiritual rescue mission, which may end in church discipline. Because if you look at it, the church doesn't get involved until the very end. So really, calling this church discipline really is not the correct term. And let me show you why. A spiritual rescue mission is not a bad thing. Everybody in here would say that's a good thing, right? A spiritual rescue mission. I mean, that sounds even more important than the rescuing of the minors. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves. If we're focusing on saving the people outside of this building that do not know the Lord, why are we not focusing on saving those among us who are perishing? See, this is really what this passage is about. This passage is about where in our flock, where in our church body do we see people that are hightailing it into hell? If we see one of our fellow believers walking away, are we hanging on to their legs, begging them to not go? See, we need to see church a little differently than we have before. We need to see it not as a club that you join. We need to see it not as a group of my closest friends. Instead, we need to see it as we are pilgrims of the king. We are foreigners, and we are coming together to remind ourselves that the king is coming and to be able to hold on. We are like a redoubt, right? We're, we're holding on against the enemy. And the worst thing that we can do is let our fellow pilgrims run off into the enemy's arms. Yes, it's accountability, and nobody likes that, but it's also protection. It's safety. You know, the U.S. military makes it a habit of leaving no man behind. They've gone to long, extreme lengths to get bodies back from places where someone has fallen. I watched a movie the other day, and there's a, there's a, there's a man, his name was Jesse, I forget his last name, he was a, a pilot, and he died in North Korea. His body is still there, and every year there are people asking for his body back. He died 67 years ago in North Korea. That desire to not lose a single one is not unique to the U.S. military. It didn't start there. It started right here in this passage with Christians. This idea of no one gets left behind. No one gets lost. So why are we not better at this? Well, I think it's probably because while we get the gospel, it's not quite the full gospel, right? We get that Jesus came to die for our sins, 
We get that he lived the life we couldn't live, and we go, that's it. But that's not it. Because if that was it, we wouldn't need all the stuff that happens after Jesus goes up to heaven in our Bibles. We wouldn't need all the explanation from Paul and from Peter and from John about what do you do next. See, the gospel is we are forgiven of our sins, and he is making us new. And the way he does that best is by putting us with other believers so we work to make each other new. We need to get the gospel more clearly. We need to understand that it's not just about, yay, my sins aren't counted against me. Yes, that's 100% true, but that's not 100% of the story. Instead, it's, yay, my sins are forgiven, and Jesus is going to make it so I sin less and less. I'm going to look more and more like him. What does he say? I'm going to come to give you everlasting life. That doesn't start when you die. It starts now. And that's what keeps us. That's what keeps us where we need to be. Not that we prayed a prayer, not that we said words, not that we went forward. We have this view that once saved, always saved. Oh, well, they're not living like a Christian. They've walked away. Well, they prayed a prayer. They're saved. I hope they are. But why leave it to that? Why are we not pursuing that individual? Why are we not pleading with them? Why are we not calling and emailing and doing everything in our power to go after them? Oh, they might get mad at me. Wouldn't you rather them be mad at you and know the truth than to be totally happy with you and when they close their eyes and wake up, go, why didn't someone tell me? When they wake up where they wake up. See, we need to realize that this picture that we're seeing today is about fellow believers going to each other and saying, you've sinned against me. What is going on with you? Are you walking away or is this a one-off? And then if that doesn't work, taking a friend with them, not to gang up and beat them while they're down, but to go, we really care about you. Don't you see? And then the last ditch effort brings the whole family together and does an intervention and says, do you see? We all see this, please. And then to let them know what that cutting off looks like, we cut them off from our fellowship. And I'll explain what that means in a moment. As a last ditch effort to get them to repent, to get them to come back to what they say is their first love. We do this together. This is why we gather. We gather so that we can grow each other we gather together so we can hold each other accountable. We can say we're all pursuing Christ. This is what matters to us. And when I get off of this, I need your help bringing me back. Just like you need my help and back and forth. So why do we do this? Why is this passage here? Well, we're gonna go back a verse. Verse 14 from last week. Jesus says, so it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Remember, he's talking about sheep. He's saying, we are like sheep. And he doesn't want a single one to perish. And remember, he says he's pursuing the one, the wandering one. In the world's eyes, a single sheep is not very valuable compared to a hundred. But the father says, it's important to me. And so this passage this week is telling us it needs to be important to us. If the father pursues the one, we must pursue the one. It must start here. Jesus has been speaking in a large block here. 
Started in verse one of chapter 18. It's this big, long block about the value of each and every one of us. So valuable that he would pursue us. So valuable that we don't want any of my sin to affect your sin, your, your life, and back and forth and back and forth. Most importantly, he tells us there is hope. There is hope. Reconciliation and forgiveness are available. So we obey God in this. God says we're to do this. Why? Well, because in God's economy, reproof or or calling somebody's sin out and love go hand in hand. Let me show you. In Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Calling out sin and love are not exclusively opposite. They're not opposite. They're the same thing. Isn't this opposite of what our culture says, though? Our culture says, if you love me, you won't say what I'm doing is wrong. If you love me, you will approve of whatever it is I'm doing. The Bible says, love and push towards holiness. Love and call each other to live the life we're supposed to live. See, God expects us to grow in holiness. That's the thing, right? He doesn't expect us to stay where he found us. He doesn't come in and save us and then go, keep wallowing. He says, no, come with me. I've got something better for you. He didn't save us so we could live our lives pretending he doesn't exist. No, he saves us. He bought us and brings us into a relationship like him. So the point of today's passage is we are to be like the Father and pursue each other so that none of us will perish. Do we do that? Brothers and sisters in the congregation straying, do we simply just let them drift away or do we pursue them? Now, this idea is not new. Now, again, this section in Matthew 18 gets the label of church discipline because it's formal sounding. It's a checklist, right? And many of you like lists. I like lists. Let's boom, 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 right? Throughout the New Testament, this is clear that we are to go and save those who are wandering away. Like those Coast Guard helicopters. There's a boat that's overturned. They brave the storm to go and save those foolish people that decided it was a good idea to go out in a storm. That's what we are to be like. Look at James 5. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See how big James is saying? He's not like, oh yeah, you bring them back from wandering, but they were okay over there. They were just getting a few more sins. No, he says, you brought them back from death. You've brought them back from death. Just like the Coast Guard guy that lowers into the water and grabs the individual off the boat that's capsized, saved from death. That's what we do when we go to our fellow believers and we say, you are sinning, you're going the wrong way. Repent, come on, choose life. Galatians, Paul says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is, our, this is our picture. This is our marching orders. So now we're going to get into the passage now. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to spend a lot of time in verse 15, okay? So in like 20 minutes from now, when we're still in verse 15, 
and you're all going, you know, I got a lunch date at noon. Don't worry. 15 is the, really the heart of this passage, so I'm going to spend most of my time there, but we're going to get into it kind of word by word, because this is where we need to live. This is the part that every single one of us needs to have touching our lives right here, right now, is verse 15. Verse 16 and verse 17 might happen in the life of the church. It probably will. But verse 15 must be happening in our lives now. Okay? So let's get into it. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother back. So we're going to walk through word by word. So the first one is if. Another word that would fit here would be the word then or when. See, we all sin. If you're new here, yes, this is a church full of sinners. You've come to the right place. Good news is, is that we have a way to take care of our sins. We have a way of restoration, which is clear in this passage. So we seek the spiritual well-being of each other. We're not just looking at who harmed who. We're looking at what can we do to restore, revive. The next word we'll look at is your brother, now, this is a little different. Remember in verse 14, he's talking about my little ones, my little sheep. Now he's changed it for us talking about our brothers. Don't get hung up on the gender here. It means siblings, okay? So siblings, my siblings in the Lord. If your sibling in the Lord. Note something else here. This rescue mission is not pastor-led. It's not elder-led. It's not ministry leader-led. It's not spiritual giant led. It's not I've been a member for 60 years and I'm leading it. It's each other. There's no way to make this about pastors doing it or elders or any of that. This is person to person, member to member, believer to believer. If your brother sins, notice it's not hurts your feelings. It's not annoys you. In fact, there might be instances where there is a sin committed against you and it's one of those ones where it's the person's having a bad day and it doesn't give them a right to sin, but they sin and you go, that's not who they are. That's not what they're normally like. I'm just going to let it go. I'm just going to go with the flow on that one. Because guess what 1 Peter 4 says? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes we are going to bump into each other and we're going to sin against each other. And if it's something small, we need to just love that person enough not to deal with it. I said small. That's the key word there. Proverbs 19, 11, Good sense makes one slow to anger. It's the glory to overlook an offense. But the key thing here is, is this is the small sin. All right? Because this whole passage is about what happens with the sins that are continuous. What about the sins that show a certain mindset, a certain heart condition? Now we got to deal with them. So let's not lose track of verse 15. I'm going to keep it up there. It's going to have it up this whole time. It says, your brother sins against you. Now, this is a key idea here. Some people go back and forth on this because there's a group of manuscripts and some say that this was there and some say it doesn't. I don't think it matters either way. Because here's the thing. Against you means they're doing something that hurts you directly. Slandering you, gossiping, or worse. Even if this against you isn't there, it still is a sin that involves the church and so it's against you. You're a part of the church. So this means anything. Now, some people will say, well, but my sins aren't affecting anybody at the church. I mean, what, what does it matter that I'm just looking at a little porn on my own? What does it matter that in my heart I'm bitter or I'm full of greed? 
doesn't hurt anybody, right? This doesn't let us off on that because it does hurt. It hurts the church. It hurts our fellowship with each other. And more importantly, it's putting you on a path that you shouldn't be on. So we are the church and we are his body. Let's go back to that Galatians passage. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So we see right here, Paul's given us the, the heart condition that we need to have. First, we need to be gentle. We need to not just go in guns blazing and boom, hit them. That's not the point. We're to do it gentle and kind. We're to show them that we love them. And then there's also the watchfulness, keeping track of the fact that when we're helping them deal with their sin, that we're not tempted to sin as well. We'll see more on this in a minute. It says, if someone has sinned against you, uh, the other way that this is worded sometimes is someone brings an offense against you. Well, there's two kinds of offenses. There's offenses given and offenses taken. An offense given is when I do something that's a sin and it offends you or it has the potential to offend you. I say something, I don't respond, and guess what? You feel wronged. You have the right to take offense. That's a justified right. It's absolutely just for you to be offended. Now, you don't have to be. We talked about that a second ago. But you have every right. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Offense taken is where somebody says something you don't like and you get offended. It's when a pastor gets up and he preaches about hell or about some sort of sexuality thing and someone comes to him and says, I was offended by what you said. Okay? But it's not a sin. So that's not something I have to repent of. So we see the difference here. It's the, if you've sinned against someone and the offense is taken, that's what's being talked about here. And that's what is our marching orders to walk forward. If your brother sins against you, go. Notice we are the ones that are going. It's not wait. If your brother sins, wait until they want to come back. Instead, it's go. Now this is really where this gets hard. This is difficult. What we're seeing here is we're seeing that the one who has just been sinned against, and Kyle, go ahead and put that verse back up on there for me. The one that has just been sinned against is the one that has to go and begin the fixing of this relationship. It is the one that has to go and help them see their sin. Spurgeon says, do not say, you must come to me. Instead, go to him. He has trespassed against you. It's a personal affair. Go and seek him. It is useless to expect the person who does the injury to make the peace. After all, they're in sin. The injured one always has to forgive, though he has nothing to be forgiven of. It always comes to that. The injured one should, if he has the mind of Christ, be the one to start the reconciliation. If you have the mind of Christ and a neighbor sins against you, it is your job to go and point that sin out to them. Yes, you're hurting. Yes, it is not enjoyable. But what you're seeing is you're seeing, I'm seeing sin in your life, and that means you are going a direction that's going to lead ultimately to death, and I love you enough that even though you just hurt me, I'm going to step out and take care of you. Does that sound like somebody? Does that maybe sound like Jesus? Isn't that what Jesus did for us? While you were still sinning, Christ died for you. Augustine says, you are worse in keeping your silence than he is in his reviling. 
So this is difficult. When we get hurt, we like to hurt back. And that's how all kids' fights start, right? He hurt me first, she hurt me first, right? We're the same thing. When a serious personal offense occurs, this is not get it off my chest so I can move on. This is not go over here and make you feel bad so you're, you, you, you're nice to me again. No, this is you are on your way to hell. If you let sin reside in your life, you're on the path to destruction. Instead, choose life, and let me help you with that. He hurt me. He sinned against me. But what he is dealing with with that sin is way worse than my personal pain. They're running headlong into hell. Now, what is this not saying? This, what this is not saying is if one of y'all goes out there and steals someone's car, drives it to their house, it's your job to then go to the house, knock on the door, hey, you sinned against me, can I have my car back? He says no, he goes, okay, come back to church, grab somebody else, take him out. That's not what this is talking about. See, this is not covering for crimes. This is not saying grin and bear it. This is not saying we are going to step into every situation because the Bible lays that out very clearly, that governing authorities and, yes, police authorities have a job to do. And wouldn't we love it if they all did it, right? They have a job to do, which means if a crime has been committed, you call the police. You don't call the church and institute a, a reconciliation program. If a crime has been committed, if there's lives in danger, if there's abuse going on, this is not a covering for abusers and criminals. And that has to be said, because unfortunately in our world, it has been used that way. So if a crime is committed, call the police. It's their job to enforce the laws. And then we will work through the church discipline aspects. And again, it's important that we hear that. So you go to him, and then you tell him his fault. This is the Greek word elegeko, which means to reprove or rebuke. Then it says alone. Notice this is in private. It's not the privacy of Twitter or Instagram, or Snapchat, or TikTok, or Facebook, MySpace. <laughs> this is alone. This is you and that individual. And that, that's important that we get that, because you are allowing there to be healing between you, and you're not bringing in a group of people. And then I love this word at the end. You have gained your brother. That word literally means one. You have won your brother. Your brother has been brought back. The purpose of discipline is not throwing people out. The purpose of discipline is winning them back to Christ. This is a commercial word. It's a word used for accumulating of wealth. It's a word that means treasure. So this idea here is that we go through this process. Why? To get our treasure back. See, we need to view each other the way God views us. Every single one of us is a treasure. Why are we a treasure? Is it because we're the goodest and smartest and doggone it people like me? No, it's because the most treasured being in the history of the universe died in your place. You are a treasure. That's why he treasures us. So this is the heart of God. Not a single one will be lost. We can't allow each other to just float away just be like, oh, they fell into sin. 
oh, I really don't know where they are. It's a loss to us. We're losing a piece of our treasure. You guys get, this is a treasure gathering here. These are treasured, each of you is a treasured piece of God's family. And when we lose one, we lose some of our treasure. So we want that restored. Notice that this, there's no time frame on this. This is not a, you go once, move to the next one, move to the next one, so on. There's no time frame. But there is a progression, and there is movement, it's clear. But this doesn't mean it's a one-time, one-conversation thing. This might need to be multiple conversations. This might need to be multiple weeks or months. Multiple attempts. May mean more than one or two visits with this offended brother or sister. But it does mean there will come a point where you're going to have to say, we have to escalate to the next level. So what are a couple of quick objections? One objection that you hear when you do this is someone will say, who are you to point out my sin? I mean, come on. Who are you? Like, what authority do you have? The answer is, you're their brother. You're their sister. Yes, you're not perfect. And if they bring up some of your sins in the midst of it, confess them and repent right there in front of them. Well, but you do, right? Don't be immobilized by this. Remember, they're running into the fire. They are running like a child chasing a ball into busy McLaughlin traffic, right? Don't let the fact that when you were their age and you flirted with going into traffic, that you feel guilty about that. Don't let that be the case. Don't let them die because you feel about the fact that you almost died when you were doing the same thing they were doing. Instead, go, I know where you're going. Stop. Let me help. I love you. There's a humility here. We've been seeing this all through chapter 18. We're nothing special. Our Savior's the one who's special. And we reach out and we grab them because they belong to him. You'll hear them say things like, you're a sinner too. And you go, yes, so we all are. What a great opportunity if they, can, if they call you out for a sin on the spot to right there repent, modeling for them what it is that you want them to do. I mean, this is the heart of the passage. This is what we need to be known for as a church, as we do our lives together, is to keep each other accountable, protect each other. This, this, for a lot of people, this sounds like hypocrisy. And we've all got sins, and just because this sin's out in front and this one's not, God sees all these sins. That's not the point of this. The point is to protect each other. And we all know, if, you've, if you're a parent in the room, you all know the thing that annoys you and your kids is the thing that you are, right? The thing that you go, oh, I can't stand that in my kid is the thing that your loving spouse goes, ha that's just like you. <laughs> and so this is an opportunity when we go to someone, we may have that same sin. We may, we may have a sin that we need to work on. So this is about our holiness and their holiness. So, to review, this is the, I told you, verse 15 was the meat of this. We're gonna be sinned against. When real sin happens, we go in private to the individual. Because the sin that they did to us was way bigger in their lives than it was in ours. Because it's showing that in their lives, they are heading the wrong direction. We go in humbleness. We go with gentleness, with kindness, and with a watchful attitude especially knowing that they may lash out at us in sin again when we go to them. 
So that watchfulness is not like, oh, I'm going to start sinning the way they were sinning, but they may lash out. And our response to that needs to be grace-filled. Our heart position needs to be, we are going to win them back. We're going to keep them from the flames. Okay, so sometimes that doesn't work. So Jesus goes, all right, I'm going to give you a second step, a second thing to do. We need to keep this in mind. Our goal in all of this is gaining back our brother. So I have added this in to each verse because this is the overarching theme. So look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he listens, you've gained your brother back. Got to keep that in our mind because it gets, we get so bogged down in this list of things we have to do. Our goal here is their repentance and gaining them, winning them back. More often than we realize, a simple conversation between two people solves it. But sometimes the person has a little too much sin going on and having a, a second person coming in. Why do, we, why do we have witnesses? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15 talks about witnesses in court cases. You have to have two witnesses. But that's not what we're talking about here. I think the first reason why we have two witnesses is a check on us, right? I'm sitting here, and I'm going, man, you know, that person, he sinned against me. I go talk to him, and he goes, I don't see it. And then you get someone else, and you go, hey, this is what they did. And that person you're talking to might go, dude, Just let it go. That's no big deal. So it's a check on the person who's been sinned against to make sure it's an actual sin. They may have information about that individual that you don't have. But sometimes this person agrees with you and they say, okay, we're going to walk forward with this and you go and you meet. See, the thing here is, is the Lord wants us to enter into this step reluctantly. He wants us to enter into this step slowly He wants us to make sure we've exhausted our opportunities before we start bringing more people in. Again, this idea of private, individual, and so on. Now, there is one instance where all of this kind of gets thrown out. And that's when there's something really big that the whole church already knows about. And many times, churches will just go straight to the, we need to have a church meeting. And those are are dealt with elsewhere in Scripture. We're not going to deal with them today. But if you want to know about those, I can show you where they are elsewhere. So we've got go to him, then go with a pair, and now we get to the third step. And this is the step that really becomes the church discipline point. Because at this point, nobody in the church necessarily knows what's going on. All right? Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he listens, you've gained your brother back. You've won your brother back. Many times the church has not even heard about this when it gets explained, and they're like, what? How did this happen? That's good. That means we did it right. Spurgeon writes, men capable of injuring their fellows are often so hardened that they will reject the kindest efforts of a few. If a brother acts in this way, do we give him up? No, we must make it a family effort. And I love that picture. We get the whole family involved now. Is it because we're gonna go, oh, shame on you? No, it's to go, do you guys, we can all pray. All of our prayers can hit. All of us can go to him. Having a line of people knocking on the door. Can you repent? We want you back. Come on. The whole family goes after him. We've not loved the wayward one unless our whole family has attempted to save him. I love this. God actually uses the 99 to restore the one. Do you see that? That's what this is. This is getting the 99 together to go and say, come on, one, look, we're all over here. 
you know, safety in numbers, come on. God used us, the 99, as his mouthpiece. And then there's one final step, and this is probably the most controversial of the bunch. Second part of verse 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. And if he responds, you win back your brother. So why is it that we would treat anyone differently? Like, what, we're allowed to treat Gentiles and tax collectors poorly? That's not what this is saying. The Gentiles are people who are worshiping a false god and are outside of the community. So this would be your non-believers who've never been in church. The tax collectors are those who started out as Jewish believers, you know, part of the covenant community, who've now sold their soul to the Romans. And so those are the ones that have been in and then have left. And so we're to treat this individual as one of those two. Now, why do we do that? We do that because now we have to change our perspective. We're not, hey, come on, we're, we're walking this path together. No, we're treating it as you're not on the path. We need to get you on the path. It changes from, hey, you're saved. Let's just, come on, you know, a little more of Jesus in you to you need to meet Jesus. This, the word that we use for this is the word excommunication. Well, we don't use it, but it is a word that is used. It sounds imposing. It sounds very, very Catholic. It's very mm, church. But it simply means to be disfellowshipped. Now, what does that mean? Disfellowship doesn't sound good. What this means is it means they are no longer considered a member of the church. Does that mean they cannot come to church anymore? No. Does that mean they can't be a part of church activities? No. Does that mean we ignore them? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, they probably need more of our attention. See, the, the sin that people get disfellowshipped for is a sin known as contumacy. And you're like, I have no idea what that is. Maybe I've done it. You haven't. Contumacy is the concept of a rightful authority saying you've done something wrong and you saying, I don't agree, I don't submit. See, it's not adultery or, um, or, or murder or all of these different things that, don't, that lead to people getting kicked out of a church, disfellowship from a church. It's the fact that they won't submit to correction. It's the fact that they won't submit to the church saying, what you're doing is wrong. Second Timothy talks, or Second Thessalonians talks about this. If anyone does not obey what is said in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. See, the goal for all of this is to lead them to repentance. And if that means for a time they need to be outside of this fellowship community in that they're not a contributing member, then guess what? That's what we will do. See, Jesus had relationships with tax collectors and Gentiles. So did the Jews. The difference was is that Jesus did not treat them as disciples until they repented. So the removal of fellowship doesn't mean have no further contact. I mean, if you're not having contact with pagans and people that are ex-Christians in your life and you're saying, I only hang out with Christians, that's a whole different sermon and a much bigger problem. We need to have relationships with people that are not Christian. We need to have people that relationships that they've walked away from the church. They need us in their lives. And so we are to continue to reach out to them. This final step is literally a last resort. We enter into it with great humility and great love and carefulness 
It should not be the thing we think happens first. Excommunication is remedial, not punitive. What I mean by remedial is it's a remedy, it's a cure. It's trying to bring about repentance. It's not our job to punish sins. It's our job to help people repent of those sins. A punitive response would be, we're gonna punish you. You're in sin, so we're gonna kick you out of our church. That's not the point. The point is, you're in sin. Repent, we want you back. We need you here. It's about renewal. It's about revival. Paul in, uh, in, in Corinth had this problem. The first Corinthians, he writes to the church, There's a man in their church, a member of their church, who's in gross sexual sin. Paul's like, why haven't you dealt with this? Why haven't you taken care of it? You should approach him, and Paul kind of walks through these steps. Then they excommunicate him. They kick him out. They disfellowship him, and he repents. And guess what they do? They say, you can't be here. We excommunicated you. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes him back and goes, you blew it again. He's repented. That's the point. Let him back in. And that's the point of this passage is we are to help each other. We're to protect each other. And so Jesus knows this is going to be hard. So he finishes up with some encouragement. And we'll quickly go through this. Knowing that this is going to be very, very difficult, he gives us three words of encouragement. And these words are not for prayer meetings. They're not for dedicating buildings. These are meant for when you are in the heart of this difficult of a situation. When you're calling out a potential believer's sin. When you are having to get a friend to go with you and have these tough conversations. When you're having to draw the church together with the potential of saying, you're not allowed to be a part of our membership. These are hard. And so the Lord comes along and says, truly I say to you, verse 18, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an indirect reference to Matthew 16. Peter had the same word said to him. Here, the word you is like y'all. It's plural. It's talking about the whole of the church. What it's saying is that when church leaders bind, they are warning that heaven is closed to unrepentant sinners. When church leaders loose, they're saying, everyone who has repented of their sins, it's free, you can go. When we bring people into the church, we are saying, we believe you've been freed from your sins. We ask, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Can you tell us about your conversion, your baptism, and what does it look like to walk with him now? We we can't see hearts, but it's our job to make sure that we have people that are a part of this membership together that have that. Unfortunately, there's also the sad part of when that disappears, we have to confront. The church's goal, as best as it can be, is to walk and act according to God's revealed will. See, God rules his kingdom by grace, but he's not permissive. He doesn't just automatically give grace to anyone and everyone all the time. It's for those who've confessed their sins, repented, and turned to Jesus. And so we are to help foster that and grow that. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is not a blank check prayer. This is not, hey, if we get two people together and pray for air conditioning, boom, we're getting it, right? That would be awesome. No, what this is saying is this is saying, 
Jesus is, gonna he- Jesus is saying the heavenly father is hearing your pleas for help. Who are the two? Well, it's the two people that have gone and talked to this individual. And this individual hasn't responded. And so they're praying, Lord, would you fix them? Heal their heart. Do it, Lord. This actually, this wording here, if two of you agree on, comes from Deuteronomy 17. In the Old Testament, when you had two witnesses to a crime, they would testify, and then their job after the verdict was handed out was they were the first two people to do what? Throw the stones. And so the idea here is that he's taking this and he's going, we're going to change this. It's going to be the first two to pray for their repentance. See, the Old Testament was, you broke a law, it was, it was the law of the land, right? This is saying, you are not following God, and instead of throwing the first two stones, you're the first two to pray. You're the first two to go, Lord, we need your help. And so the Lord's saying, when you pray about these, I hear it. When you, when you come to me with these, I hear it. Isn't that encouraging, that the Lord hears our prayers in these moments when probably we feel like he's the farthest from us? And then lastly, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. There's only three times in Matthew where Jesus says that he is with us. The first one is in Matthew 1.23, and it's talking about dealing with our sins. That's where we get the Emmanuel, God with us. The third one is at the end of the book of Matthew, the Great Commission, when we have to go and evangelize, also a difficult thing to do. And then the second one is right here. Discipline is hard. It's hard to discipline in a disobedient child. Never seems like the disobedience of children happens at a convenient time. You know, when you're like, oh, I feel like disciplining, let's go. It's always like, oh, really? I'm ready for bed. Oh, we've got to be somewhere. But the consequences of not disciplining are way worse. Mutual accountability within this body is hard. It's hard. It's hard for us as friends. It's even harder for us who are married. Husbands and wives have to be accountable to each other. It's no fun being admonished and being told what you've done is wrong. But if we ignore it, it leads to not greater oneness, not greater unity, but greater division. And Christ's church is not to be divided. So we must confront sin in each other's lives. We must admonish each other. We have to fight against the world's view, which is to tell me I'm doing something wrong is hateful. We have to fight against that. Our culture says you're being nosy, you're being hypocrites, you're being judgmental. Remember, the gospel always flies in the face of the world's way of doing things. And for us to call out the sin we see in others in private, with the desire, with the heart posture of, I want you back, brother. I want you back, sister. We must fight against the world's view on this. We must be willing to step in the gap and take the abuse of this sinner who's coming at us when we confront them on their sin. We must be willing to take someone else as uncomfortable as that is because their sin is leading them to death. So I'm going to change Charles Spurgeon's quote and adjust it to us right now. If brothers and sisters be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. 
If my brothers and sisters right here in this church are to perish, let them perish with my arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay, imploring them to repent. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our rescue mission, fully attempted and worn out, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We must pursue our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must hold them accountable. We must allow them to hold us accountable. Let us strive together to pursue Christ well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for these these difficult words and yet so encouraging. That, Lord, you just didn't leave us to figure out how to do this all on our own. But, Lord, you have put believers around us who know you, and want to follow you, and want us to follow you. Help us to be like that. Help us to be willing to text our friends and say, I want you to be a Matthew 18 friend. I want you to be a Matthew 18, 15 friend who calls me out when I start to sin. Maybe that means we need to apologize beforehand and just say, I'm sorry that when you call it out, I'm gonna be sinful back to it. But Lord, that's the kind of church we need to be because that's the kind of savior you are. You came and you got us and you saved us when we were at our worst. Help us to do that for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.